Good to be here with you today, and I hope you're having a very, very fine Sabbath day. Now, in this sermon, uh, it is my desire to allow a negative to reinforce a positive outcome for each and every one of us. And to begin, what I will do is I want to cite a few biblical facts that are going to be used as a platform from which this sermon will be built. So I'd like to cite some facts, uh, facts which you know what they, when I mention them, you will be acquainted with them. It won't be something new. Uh, we'll look at three scriptures that we will turn to, and I trust you'll be familiar with them as well. Now for the little ones who are among us today, little ones meaning little ones in age, uh, possibly someone new to the faith, or someone maybe who is not committed to this way of life as yet, the material that we will cover in this message is quite important. And I do ask for our little ones to, to give a keen ear as well. Now, as I mentioned, I do want to turn to a, a few scriptures to establish some basic points from scripture. Turn with me to Romans chapter 6. Romans 6, and then we'll look at verse 23. Now, Romans 6, 23 establishes two very important points from Scripture. Two major points, two fundamental points, two very important points that we need to be aware of, and they are essential to understanding what this message will be. Here is the first fact from Scripture. Romans 6, 23, for the wages of sin is death. The scripture states that the Bible is clear. I don't know that it could be any clear, more clearly stated. The wages of sin is death. The contemporary English version says sin pays off with death. If you commit sin, you incur the death penalty. That's the law from on high. That's life. That's the way it is, period. That's the law from scripture. The wages of sin is death. Now, if you'll possibly hold your finger there, turn back a page or two to Romans 3, and then verse 23, it says, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We see what the penalty for sin is, and the Bible's very clear. Everybody has sinned. Everyone has fallen short of the glory of God. Uh, the English Revised Version translates that scripture this way. All have sinned and are not good enough to share God's divine greatness. So since the law states that the penalty for sin is death, since the Bible states that everyone has sinned, what is your fate? What lies in store as we look at those two basic points from Scripture? Now here is the second uh, fact that I would like to read to you. We're back in Romans 6 once again. Romans 6 and then verse 23. We read, first fact, the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. However, even though the wages of sin is death, God extends his mercy God offers the gift of eternal life in Jesus Christ, our Lord. The third fact, to receive that gift of eternal life, we must repent of our sins. Because all have sinned, sin brings the death penalty. Turn back a few pages to Acts chapter 3. There are scores of scriptures, of scripture which says, repentance or repent. So the Bible is replete with Scripture on that subject. Let's just look at one. Acts chapter 3 and then verse 19. Repent therefore and be converted, that your sins may be blotted out so that the times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord. Repent therefore and be converted, so that your sins may be blotted out. Why is it important to repent? 
It's important to repent because if we don't, our sins are not blotted out. Sin remains in our life. It's a part of our lives if we do not repent of sin or sins. It's not been washed away with. It has not been forgiven. Sin, is, sin that is not forgiven incurs and requires the death penalty. It's quite clear from Scripture. Those are basic facts. I don't think I have startled anyone yet in the sermon. It's not my desire to startle you, but those are basic facts. We need to understand them. The Bible also shows that Jesus Christ is our Redeemer. He was put to death and paid the price for our sins. He took the death penalty upon himself. He took our place in the required penalty for death by being sacrificed for us. And he was sacrificed for us. The Bible shows that he is our divine redeemer, the one who has bought us back from death. He paid the price in our stead. Romans 3 verse 25, let me read that to you from the contemporary English version. God sent Christ to be our sacrifice. Christ offered his life's blood so that by faith in him, we could come to God. And God did this to show that in the past, he was right to be patient and forgive sinners. This also shows that God is right when he accepts people who have faith in Christ. He is the one who has paid the penalty for us. Now, brethren, repentance is key. Repentance is key. It is clear from Scripture that the offer of eternal life hinges on the fact of repentance. Once again, repentance is key. Committing sin brings the death penalty. One must repent of his or her sins to receive the gift of eternal life. If sin remains, it is not forgiven. If it is not forgiven, then the death penalty is decreed. The death penalty is active. The death penalty is still alive. The death penalty is, pardon the pun, it's hot. The death penalty is hot. It's alive. It remains. Sin that has not been forgiven, sin that has not been repented of so that repentance could be given, remains. And we see from Scripture what the penalty is for them. Now, brethren, that's the baseline for the sermon. That's foundational. Now, let's go forward from there. Now, the Bible is quite clear that the context of receiving that gift of eternal life is within the time frame of the coming kingdom of God. That's when that gift of God is bestowed, during the time frame of the coming kingdom of God. The gift is bestowed bestowed upon individuals. That occurs over a protracted period of time, and we rehearse that as we go through the feasts of God, the holy days of God. And the kingdom of God begins on earth and then therefore begins eternal life in a certain order, in a certain time frame. Now, here's the responsibility that I will assume today in bringing this sermon. What can I say to you today, to protect you spiritually and secure your path to the kingdom of God? What can I present to you? What can I say to you today that would protect you spiritually and therefore secure your path to the kingdom of God? We've all already touched on briefly what those steps are, what's required. What can we do? Now, without question, the first thing I would say is seek you first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. That's what we have to do. But I also feel compelled to warn the elect. That's the audience to which I speak today. I feel compelled to warn the elect of the peril you face if you don't seek the kingdom of God once this great knowledge has been opened to you. I would encourage you to seek the kingdom of God, but I also feel compelled to warn you, if you don't, what lies in store? 
Now, here's what I'd like to accomplish in today's message. I want to motivate you to not allow anything to separate you from the love of God and to hinder his gift of eternal life. Don't let anything come up in your life. Don't be of any frame of mind. Don't take any course of action or lack of action. That would allow something to come between you and that which should be your destiny, the kingdom of God. Now, how can I persuade you to do that? It is a given that there are three major ways to motivate individuals to do something. There are more than three, but uh, three that are uh, come to mind and are, are quite essential means to motivate someone to do something. The f they are reward, punishment, and internalization. Okay. Reward means you tell someone if you do such and such, you're motivating them to do something that there's going to be a reward if you do it. You'll get it. Something good's going to happen. If you do this, so let's do it. The motivation of punishment is, now if you don't, if you don't do this, then there is punishment that lies in store. The other is internalization, where you talk with them, you work with them so that they capture the vision. Yes, this is what I want to do. It becomes a part of them. It's the way that they are. It becomes them. It's a part of them. They've internalized it, and they want to. Now, maybe just to give a, a very simplistic example of how those three are used. Let's just take our camp program. And uh, I think <clears throat> Mr. Andy Burnett is the premier camp director. I know of no one who does it better than Mr. Burnett. And he does it with a song. But Mr. Burnett, he might hear in Texas... When we have our summer camp in the middle of July, it is so hot and so humid, yet the ground is so dry and dusty. So you could have a time when all the campers come on campus, the director of the camp is going to address them, and he would go over certain things. Let's just say one thing he might want to address. This is not a specific thing that has happened, but it may be a good idea for Mr. Burnett to maybe use this as time goes forward. He might say, you know, campers, you really need to keep your dorm clean, your room. We're all, there are 10 or 15 of you, and you got the bunk beds, and it's close. And you need to keep it clean because you're outside all day. You've got your tennis shoes. You've got your shirt and all those things. And it's easy not to make your bed, and we'll be climbing over that. So you need to keep your room clean. And if you do, the end of the week... Friday evening, we will go to the commissary and you can have all of the ice cream that you want. And it's free. So after all, will you keep that room clean? Your counselor tells me that you've got free ice cream that Friday evening. It's going to be great. That's a motivator. Now in that, he might say, however... If you don't keep your room clean and those tennis shoes with the bacteria and the fungi that's growing in them and your shirt that you didn't put in the, the hamper that would be washed every day and all those things that you have and you don't make your bed and you're stepping over things, if you don't keep your room clean, guess what? Come next Friday night when dorm one, two, three and five have all the ice cream they can eat. You don't get any. I'm just letting you know ahead of time, you're not going to get free ice cream. So it will behoove you. Keep that room clean because if you don't, there's no ice cream and you'll sit there and you'll watch those kids eat all. They'll be sick. They're going to have so much ice cream, but you won't get any. And then another motivator, and that would be really the heart in this scenario, I want you to learn to keep things in order. Keep things cleaned up so that when you go home, now you like to keep your room clean. You see the value of keeping it clean and not letting it get dirty. 
So the overall goal would be, yes, you do this. You, all of a sudden, you do it every morning, but when you get home, it stayed with you. This is the way you are. You're the 13-year-old teenage boy, the only one on your block who keeps his room clean because you saw the value of it, and that's the way you are. Simplistic, I will admit that. But that's an example of how those three forms of motivation uh, would work. Now, the best of the three, without question, is to internalize, and that's the goal of being a Christian. And in fact, the appropriate hallmark of a Christian or the signature of a Christian is one who has internalized the vision of the kingdom of God. It's them. It's a part of them. That's what they are. Now, typically, the sermons that we hear on the Sabbath, uh, the sermons that we hear at the Feast of Tabernacles, they use typically the first and third methods. Reward and internalization. We preach, if you will indulge me, till we're blue in the face, particularly at the Feast of Tabernacles, that we capture the vision of the kingdom. That is going to be so beautiful and so wonderful and so enjoyable, not just for you, but for mankind of those generations. It's going to be great. And we use that. As a church pastor, the number of years that I was a church pastor, I use that all of the time and internalization. Those are typically what is used. But here's a statement. Your destiny as a Christian, the elect of God, is to be in the kingdom of God to rule as a king and priest. That's your destiny. If you are among the elect, the first fruits of God, you will be in the kingdom of God and you will rule and be a, a king and a priest. However, that statement won't mean a thing to you unless you're there. If you're not there, you are not going to be a king or a priest. That encouraging statement, which it is, and we could back that up with Scripture, that's so enlightening, it's so encouraging. But the other part of that statement, of that understanding, is that won't mean a thing to you unless you're there. Unless you're there at the kingdom. If you're not there at the kingdom, you will not have that reward of being a king and a priest. Now, how can I make that statement? I can make that statement because I know the group to which I'm speaking. You are called. You wouldn't be here if you weren't called, unless you wandered in thinking that the Unity Church met on Saturday. Uh, you are here because you are called. And I can make that statement because of the timing of your judgment. When are you and I judged? Now turn with me to 1 Peter chapter 4. 1 Peter 4, and let's look at verse 17. Peter 4, 17, I'm reading from the New King James. For the time has come for judgment to begin at the house of God. And if it begins with us first, what will be the end of those who do not obey the gospel of God? Now, if the righteous one is scarcely saved, where will the ungodly and the sinner appear? Verse 17, contemporary English version. God has already begun judging his own people. And if his judgment begins with us, imagine how terrible it will be for those who refuse to obey his message. Brethren, what that scripture encompasses is judgment has, begin, has begun upon the house of God, the New Testament house of God, the New Testament church, the people who comprise the New Testament church, those who God says are called those who are the elect. And since judgment has begun on this group, how terrible will it be? What will be the end of those who do not obey the gospel of God? That statement is for us. Judgment is now. If we don't pass the judgment, if I may couch it that way, 
how terrible it will be, uh, using the uh, contemporary English version. Imagine how terrible it will be for those who refuse to obey his message. Brethren, quite frankly, today is our day of judgment. Now is the accepted time. Now is the day of salvation. Now is the day for the called out ones. Now is the time to justify or to validate your role as a soon coming king and priest, the elect of God. So once again, what can I say today to motivate you? And when I say you, I mean you and me, but I'm already motivated. I've been working on this sermon for six months. I'm not saying I brought any fruit yet, but I, I am motivated. So if I use you, I, I am not speaking in a condescending um, platform, I trust. So what can I say today that would motivate you to remain the seed that has fallen on good ground? That enables you to wear the moniker of the first fruit of God's plan of salvation. There are three ways to motivate Reward, punishment, and internalization. The greatest, the most lasting motivator is when you take ownership of the knowledge that you have. You take ownership. It's when you internalize it, it becomes you, it's a part of you, it's the way you are, it's inside of you, it defines who you are. You are a Christian, a Christian has a certain attitude, a certain approach. A certain appreciation of God and the sacrifice of Christ, an understanding of the need to repent when we fall short. That is all descriptive of what the Christian is. Do you know there are two other major ways to motivate an individual? And I would dare say that reward is an excellent motivator. And that's typically what we hear in sermons. And that's looking back when, when I spoke every Sabbath, I would use that quite a bit. But what about the motivator of the fear of punishment? What about that motivator? How does that apply to you? And how does that apply to me? So today, instead of reward, which obviously has already been touched on and will be reiterated, Today I want to use the additional motivator of punishment or the fear of punishment because the Bible uses that. In fact, the, the Bible has abundant scripture to look and see as to what is the punishment for those who have come under the judgment of God and don't respond or don't stay or don't continue. Title of the sermon today is, The Sin That Is Not Forgiven. It's my desire to approach, for this approach that I'm taking, is to fulfill a positive goal by, made, by motivating you to know the purpose of your calling and the negative aspect that comes with being called today. I'd like to underscore two biblical truths that deal with forgiveness. Two biblical truths that deal with forgiveness. The first, God will forgive us of the sins that we commit. Brethren, we hang our life on that statement. God will forgive us of the sins that we commit. His son paid the price. He came in our stead upon the cross. He's anxious to forgive. God's approach is not, boy, I sure hope he or she sins so I don't give him the kingdom of God. I don't want to let him in the kingdom. That's not God's approach. John 3, 16, God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. His desire is to forgive us. That is what he wants. He does not want us to perish. He wants us to have everlasting life. That's first point or a biblical truth dealing with forgiveness. The second is this. There is sin that will not be forgiven. 
There is sin that will not be forgiven. Are you aware of that? Do you know that? Is that a part of you as well? Do you have that understanding in your biblical knowledge in the way you conduct yourself? However, in light of the unending mercy of God, there is sin that is not forgivable. It is sin that is not forgiven that I want us to understand today. Why do we need to know this? Why do we need to be aware of that? Because it is unrepentant sin that will keep you out of the kingdom of God. It is unrepentant sin that will keep God from granting us eternal life. It is axiomatic. Unrepentant sin will bar your entrance into the kingdom of God. Unrepentant sin handcuffs God where he cannot extend the gift of eternal life. Now let's, from scripture, let's look in the Bible and let's see the sin that is not forgiven. Are there sins too bad for God to forgive? And if so, what are they? The answer to, are there sins too bad for God to forgive? The answer is yes. There is sin along with the attitude that engenders that sin that God will not forgive. Now, that statement should shake you and me to our very core. You and me, our children, our loved ones, our friends in the church, we need to understand that biblical truth. There is sin that is not forgiven. Let's take a closer look at that, at that truth. The Bible warns that there is sin that is not forgiven. There are three warnings which refer to knowingly and intentionally rejecting God. Rejecting God by either denying the work of the Holy Spirit or denying the sacrifice of Jesus Christ through which sin is forgiven or not claiming the intentionally not claiming the sacrifice of Jesus Christ to forgive sin. The Bible warns that there is sin that is not forgiven. There are three warnings in scripture. They are falling away, blaspheme against the spirit or the Holy Spirit, and sinning willfully, sinning willfully. Let's take a look at those from scripture. First, we'll look at falling away. Notice in Hebrews chapter six, Hebrews six, and then we'll look at verse four. For it is impossible for those who were once enlightened and have tasted the heavenly gift and have become partakers of the Holy Spirit. Notice the specifics of what is said. It's very succinct. It is most important. For it is impossible for those who were once enlightened and have tasted the heavenly gifts, which have become partakers of the Holy Spirit, and have tasted the good word of God and the powers of the age to come, if they fall away to renew them again to re renew them again to repentance, since they crucify again for themselves the Son of God and put him to an open shame. If I may summarize, I want to be careful how this is stated. The person who had God's spirit, yet subsequently, knowingly, intentionally, turned away from God and his way of life. This is a person who has become unwilling to repent and therefore cannot be forgiven because sin lies within them and they have not repented of that sin. The wages of sin is death. The sin that cannot be forgiven is a sin which a person to, refuses to repent of. And by not repenting, having the knowledge, they reject that sacrifice of Jesus Christ and they intentionally choose sin over repentance and forgiveness and obedience. Now, Scripture says clearly they're falling away. God is not addressing, 
excuse me, God is not addressing a drifting away. God is not addressing in that scripture a departure. Now, to underscore those two statements, turn with me to Matthew chapter 18. Matthew 18, it's not talking about someone who has drifted away, someone who has departed, although depending the course of action of the individual who has drifted away or departed, they may fall under and become those who have fallen away. But if you'll notice in Matthew 18, and then let's look at verse 12. Christ speaking, what do you think? If a man has a hundred sheep and one of them goes astray, does he not leave the ninety-nine and go to the mountains to seek the one that is straying? Verse 13. And if he should find it, assuredly, I say to you, he rejoices more over that sheep than over the ninety-nine that did not go astray. Verse 14, even so, it is, even so it is not the will of your Father who is in heaven that one of these little ones should perish. Here you have the sheep, the lamb that drifted away. The effort of God is to go after them. The effort of the church is to follow that admonition and do what we can to go after that one who has drifted away, that one who has departed. Uh, notice a similar account, though different. Uh, turn with me to Luke chapter 15. Luke 15 and then verse 18. This is the most famous account of the prodigal son. The prodigal son who had received his inheritance, he went and wasted it through profligate living and spending. He was brought down to the point that he was just eating things that would be detestable. And he juxtaposed that with the life that he had, and it came upon him that he understood that what he had, do, had done, the choices he had made were wrong, and he was sorry. Luke 15, and then verse 18. Speaking of the prodigal son, I will arise and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. And he arose and came to his father. But when he was still away off, the father saw him and had compassion and ran and fell on his neck and kissed him. Verse 21, and the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and in your sight. And I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, bring out the best robe, put it on him, put a ring on his hand and sandals on his feet and bring the fatted calf here and kill it and let us eat and be merry for this is my son. For this my son was dead and is found and is alive. Again, he was lost and is found, and they began to be merry. So, brethren, when the pronouncement is made in Hebrews 6 about he or she who has fallen away, there remains no more sacrifice for him or for her. We're not talking about the individual who has departed. But what Hebrews 6 is addressing is the individual who becomes apostate, has no desire to come back, has no desire to be found, has no desire to repent of that lifestyle and to desire to come back to the lifestyle upon which they had departed. To abandon one's belief, to become apostate. That's what Hebrews 6 is referring to that falling away. Let's look at another example that is given. Matthew chapter 12, this is the second one as far as the sin that will not be forgiven. Matthew 12 and then verse 31. Therefore I say to you, this is Christ speaking, therefore I say to you, every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven men. But the blasphemy against the Spirit will not be forgiven men. Anyone who speaks a word against the Son of Man, it will be forgiven him. 
But whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit, it will not be forgiven him either in this age or the age to come. A blaspheme against the Holy Spirit. Now to blaspheme, that means to vilify or to slander or to speak evil against. Without question, those two verses we read deserves the context in which they were written to understand. Let's notice in Matthew 12, and let's begin in verse 22. This is what leads up to that statement by Jesus Christ. Then one was brought to him, meaning brought to Jesus, who was demon-possessed, blind and mute, and he healed him so that the blind and the mute man both spoke and saw. And all the multitude were amazed and said, could this be the son of David? Now, when the Pharisees heard it, they said, This fellow does not cast out demons except by Beelzebub, the ruler of demons. If I could pause there in verse 23. When they said, Could this be the son of David? That means an acknowledgement. Could this be the Messiah? They didn't say, Could this be Jeremiah? Uh, could this be um, Elijah? Could this be the son of David, the Messiah? By doing that, that powerful miracle, they were being drawn to, to Jesus Christ. Their eyes were opening, and they came to the conclusion, could this be the Messiah? Now, the Pharisees saw that, and they had to counter that. And we'll see in a moment, they knowingly countered that. Now, when the Pharisees heard it, they said, this fellow does not cast out demons except by Beelzebub, the ruler of the demons. But Jesus knew their thoughts. And he said to them, every kingdom divided against itself is brought to desolation. Every city or every house divided against itself will not stand. If Satan casts out Satan, he is divided. He's divided against himself. How then will his kingdom stand? Verse 27, if I cast out demons by Beelzebub, by whom do your, do your sons cast them out? Therefore, they shall be your judges. But if I cast out demons by the Spirit of God, surely the kingdom of God has come upon you. Now skip down to verse 31. Therefore, I say to you, every sin and blaspheme will be forgiven men, but the blasphemy against the Spirit will not be forgiven men. They had witnessed a miracle by Jesus Christ, and that had led them to begin to trust or to state, could this be the son of David? Is this the prophesied son of God? But the Pharisees, in their attempt to discredit the work of Jesus Christ and to deliberately, with understanding, and intentionally mislead the people, saying that what you saw, the miracle of the dumb and blind, healed and healed, he did that by the power of Satan when they knew it was not the power of Satan. It is key to understand what Christ said. He said he knew their thoughts. He knew what was in their mind. He knew what was in their heart. It wasn't a misstatement. It wasn't just some show. It wasn't something, oh, I wish I could take that back. He knew their thoughts. He knew their heart. And therefore, he made that judgment. And that judgment was a warning to that generation and every generation since. Blaspheme against the Holy Spirit. When one knows the Holy Spirit had been moved, God had moved through the Holy Spirit, a work, and they knew it, and they understood it, and they believed it, and then they gave credit to Satan the devil or to blaspheme. Christ says that sin will not be forgiven. What mindset developed for someone to come to that point in their life that they would do that? That's another, <laughs> that's another sermon series. Now, the third sin that is mentioned here, Hebrews chapter 10 Hebrews 10, and begin in verse 26. And as Scripture shows, to sin willfully. 
to sin willfully. Hebrews 10, and then begin in verse 26. For if we sin willfully after we have received the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a certain fearful expectation of judgment and fiery indignation which will devour the adversaries. Anyone who has rejected Moses' law dies without mercy on the testimony of two or three witnesses. Of how much worse punishment do you suppose will he be thought worthy who has trampled the Son of God underfoot, counting the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified a common thing and insulted the Spirit of grace? If you notice verse 30, for we know him who said, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. And again, the Lord will judge his people. Verse 31, it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. To sin willfully is when a person utterly refuses to comply with God's law or to repent after breaking that law even though he completely understands that he or she should. His character, the will, the desire, they're set. He knowingly rejects and rebels against God. He is sinning willfully. There's no sacrifice or forgiveness for the sins of one who knows God, understands that he should repent and accept Jesus Christ's sacrifice, but refuses to do so knows and understands that it is sin, and then refuses to repent of it. God is willing to forgive us our sins. If we do repent, and I trust you know the full scope of repentance, synopsis would be to confess the sin and then to change and be converted. Knowledge of the sin, confess the sin, stop doing the sin, and then change so we're not continuing in the sin. For those who truly repent, they have not committed the unpardonable sin because when they repent of the sin they've committed, God is just, just to forgive that sin. Knowing human beings, myself being chief among the human beings who I know, Everyone occasionally sins out of weakness or ignorance. Some individuals do have habits or they have a pattern that they slip back into from time to time. It doesn't make it right. It doesn't whitewash the fact that they do that, that we do that. All of us are not without sin. And sometimes even those of the elect, through struggle, fall back to the time when we do sin. Sin willingly, allowing yourself to sin, is different from sinning willfully, where you determine to sin, from which you want no repentance, you, you don't want forgiveness. And whatever brought the person to that mindset, that they would have that, uh, is a frightening thing. As long as we genuinely repent and ask forgiveness and make a diligent effort to obey God, we can be confident that God will forgive us and we have not committed a sin that is not forgivable. Remember John 1 and verse 9. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. This is so encouraging. Now let me give a word of caution in this message, it probably should have, come, should have been given a little earlier than this particular time frame. But here would be the word of caution. As you contemplate the sin that can be committed for which there's no forgiveness, it is very easy to put a face with that. Very easy to think back of people who you know who were a part of this way of life, could be mother, father, sister, brother, parent, child, friend, minister, deacon, member, you name it. Could be many faces 
that could be put on that doctrine, that statement of truth, who has committed the unpardonable sin. Now, we don't want to do that. If you do that today at this time, you're going to be sad. Uh, your mind is going to wander to that person or persons. Doing so is going to limit the impact that the message of this sermon should have as a motivating force for you. If we get sad, if we put a face on it, and it's so easy to do that. And as I was preparing the sermon, working on it, boy, the faces came to mind. It's just human. Well, what about this one? What about that one? I wonder if. And that could be family members, people who you love, people who you knew, people who you followed. Don't do that. Don't put a face on it. Why do I say don't put a face on it? Because you put yourself in the position of being that individual's judge. You're not their judge. I'm not their judge, period. It's only God. It's God who knows the heart. Remember, as Christ said, he perceived their thoughts. He knew their thoughts. He knows the thoughts. He knows the heart. You and I do not know the thoughts. You and I do not know the heart. We just don't. You and I do not understand the extent of their calling or the depth of their conversion or lack thereof. We don't know what did the seed fall upon when the calling was given. Did the seed fall by the wayside? Did the seed fall on rock? Did the seed fall among thorns? Or did the seed fall upon good ground and fruit was born? It's God who knows the heart. You and I don't know that. We have observation. We see things. We draw conclusions. But I do want for all of us to apply the message that we see from Scripture on a personal basis. Let's apply it to us, and then let's seek the wisdom to use the knowledge correctly. Don't put a loved one's face on it. For this message to be of value, you need to focus on you. You focus on you, and I'll focus on me. Mr. Burnett, focus on Mr. Burnett. Mr. Johnson, on Mr. Johnson. Mr. Beach, on Mr. Beach. Mr. Beach, don't focus on Mr. Johnson. Mr. Johnson, don't focus on Mr. Burnett. I'll focus on all of you, because I'm giving the sermon. No, I'll focus on me. For the lesson that we see from Scripture, if it is to have value in your life, don't put someone's face on it. Focus on you. And understand, the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is, is eternal life. Now, Matthew 24, 14, very short scripture, it says, For many are called, but few are chosen. You have been called, or you wouldn't be here. Only time will tell if you have been called and chosen. And then Revelation 17, 14 adds called, chosen, and faithful. That is yet to be determined. We've been called. Will we be chosen? And maybe we are chosen. And I trust every one of us are chosen and a part of the elect. Will we be faithful? Revelation 17, 14 referring to the return of Christ, for he is Lord of lords and King of kings. Those who are with him are called, chosen, and faithful. The timing of your calling is now. It is prior to the return of Jesus Christ. That means you've been called to be among the first fruits, the elect of God, the first of the harvest that God is going to have. You're called now to be among the elect. 
If God judges that you have been a part of the elect, I didn't say if I judge, didn't say if you judge, I said if God judges that you have been a part of the elect, if God judges that this is your day of salvation, then there are only two possible outcomes of your calling and being a part of the elect. Two things that lie in store. Let's look at Revelation 5. Revelation 5 is a reward that God holds for those who have been called are his elect and have been faithful. The gift is eternal life. The reward for those who are the first fruits is the following. Revelation 5, verse 8, verse 10. And he made us kings and priests to our God, and we shall reign on the earth. That's one outcome of our calling now and being among the elect. Over a few pages, Revelation 20, in the same theme, a little more detail, Revelation 24. 20, verse 4. And I saw thrones, and they that sat on them, and judgment was committed to them. Then I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for their witness to Jesus for the word of God, who had not worshipped the beast or his image, and had not received his mark on their foreheads or in their hands. And they lived and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. A thousand years. Verse 6, blessed and holy is he who has part in the first resurrection. Over such, the second death has no power, but they shall be priests of God and of Christ and shall reign with him a thousand years. Right at the advent of his return to set up that kingdom through the millennium, you reign with Christ. Right there beside him. What a blessing. What a reward. What an outcome of being called today. And answering that call, called, chosen, and faithful. That is what lies in store. The other possibility for someone who is called today by God has been chosen, but has taken a different, different path. Revelation 20, where we, where we currently are, look at verse 14. Then death and Hades were cast into the lake of fire. This is the second death. And anyone not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. They had been judged. Their name is not in the book of life. We just read in verse 6 of the same chapter, those who are in uh, do not receive the second death of that group. If, if your name is not in the book of life, then you do face the second death. Second Peter. Second Peter chapter 3. And again, a, a more detail of what Revelation 20, 14, and 15 is addressing is given here. Second Peter 3, and then let's begin in verse 10. But the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night, in which the heavens will pass away with a great noise. And the elements will melt with fervent heat. Both the earth and the works that are in it will be burned up. Therefore, since all these things will be dissolved, what manner of persons ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness? I may just pause for a moment. Since we know that everything physical that we see, that drives so much, that describes what we are. This is the environs we live. This is what we see. This is, a, this is our life. If this is all going to be burned up, it's going to be judged and burned up, how should we conduct ourselves? Should we not look beyond the physical and look to the future? Seek you first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, knowing that that which we see today at one point will be gone. Should that not motivate us to go forward on the path toward God. Quoting again verse 12, looking for and hastening the coming day of God because of which the heavens will be dissolved, being on fire, the elements will melt with fervent heat. Verse, 14, verse 13, nevertheless we according to his promise look for a new heaven and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, looking forward to these things, 
Be diligent to be found by him in peace without spot and blameless. Reoccurring throughout scripture is the admonition to seek righteousness, to be blameless. Not to be a part of the world, not to be diverted by the world, which at one point is going to be consumed in fire. But you strive and you drive toward that, that high calling of God that he has given. We do need to realize when you see those two possible outcomes of being called and judged today, if God determines you have been called and judged today, you'll either be in God's kingdom from the very beginning as a king and priest, or you face the lake of fire. It's two outcomes that we have. We don't receive a second chance. Like, frankly, we're talking serious business, serious conditions. We're talking about internalizing the way of God that produces a reward or having internalized the way of God and then fallen away from it, which produces punishment. Now, allow me to make a, another few statements of fact because they are quite important to understand this topic. God is our judge. He knows our heart. It is God and Jesus Christ, God the Father, Jesus Christ, the only one who knows the depth of our calling and if we have truly responded to his call. It is God who knows the soil upon which the seed has fallen. It is God who is the ultimate judge because he knows all the facts and we don't. You and I are not the judge of someone else. You and I deal with observation. We're in a weakened position to pass judgment on someone's eternal life or lack thereof. We're not in that position. Human nature, we tend to arrogate to ourselves that role. But don't put a face on it. Don't make that mistake. We don't have all the facts. We don't know the, the depth of the calling. We don't know if someone has fallen away or has walked away. We don't know that. Therefore, we are not to judge now. At some point, we will judge with Jesus Christ, but that's not now. You and I are human beings. We deal with observation. We don't know the heart. Let me give just briefly, I'll call it, it is, it's a real life scenario. Something that did take place, has taken place. If your readers digest reader, it's drama in real life. Their little series that they have, if they still have it. Now here's a caveat before I relate to you this scenario. Here's my caveat, here's my disclaimer. I am not the judge of the two people that I'll mention in this scenario, obviously absent of name. I don't know their hearts. My comments are based on observation. They are not coming from the imperial seat of judgment that rests at the feet of God. Now these two individuals I met about 50 years ago. One did not have a history in the church. The one was a church member. And they were friends. They, had, they were you know, would see each other and all of that. And the one individual had no history in the church. He was raised uh, a Protestant, probably a, a Baptist, if I remember correctly. And he had been taught all his life by his mother, if you're a bad boy, their phrase, you're going to hell. You're going, you're going, to, you're going to go straight to hell. You're going to be burned up with fire. Now, he knew he was a bad boy. He knew he was still a bad boy. And as he would say, I'm going to hell. But he'd look at the other guy and said, but I'm going to get there before you do. And when I get there, I'm going to throw extra wood on the fire. I'm going to put more coal on the fire. So when you get there, it's even hotter and you're going to roast forever. And then the person who had been exposed to the church, even had been baptized. He said, oh no. He said, yeah, you're going to get there before me. But 
I am not going to roast forever. God can only burn me once. And that's where I'm headed. Now, what would cause someone to say that in both accounts, the lifestyle they were living, they didn't want to change. The bad boy knew he was bad. He wasn't going to change. The member or former member, he understood Scripture. God's only going to burn me once. You, you think you're going to roast forever, but I know I'm going to be burned like that. Now, as I relate that to you, I am not that person's judge. In observation, that's textbook unpardonable sin, observation. But I don't know the the condition of the soil upon which the seed fell. I don't know if repentance was ever there. I don't know those things. I don't know to what degree the person responded to their calling. I am not their judge. And am I relating that scenario to you? I am not trying to be a judge. Please don't, when the sermon is done, and those of you who text during the sermon say, boy, Mr. Taylor just preached somebody straight to hell. No, he didn't. And that's H-A-I-L, hell. He did not do that. He does not pass judgment. I told you from observation. And thankfully, I am not in that position to judge. It is God. Repentance encompasses confession and a commitment to change. Few moments that we have left, let's focus for a few moments on us as individuals. Matthew chapter 10, Matthew 10 and then verse 28. Do not fear those who kill the body and cannot kill the soul, but rather fear him who is able to destroy both soul and body in hell, or in Gehenna fire. Who should you fear? Don't feel, fear a man who can, all they can do is kill your body. Fear God. Not only can he kill or destroy your body, he can destroy your opportunity for eternal, eternal life. That's what is in reference there when it says soul in this context. Life eternal. It's only God who has dominion over that. I won't take the time to turn to 2 Peter, 2 Peter chapter 2, verses 20 through 22. It's a dire warning. It's a dire warning for those who reject God after having tasted the wonderful fruit of knowing God. Scripture says one who does that is as a a dog turning to its vomit, as Scripture says, or a, a hog or swine that wallows again in the mire. That it would have been better that they had not known the truth of God than to have known it tasted of the heavenly gift, understood and have received the Spirit of God to then fall away from that. We are talking, brethren, serious things, serious business without question. Do know, in God calling you today in your lifetime, He would not have called you had He not known that with His Spirit and forgiving power through repentance that you would have made it. You would have been loyal to Him. We'd never do it on our own. With God's Spirit and the ability to seek repentance with forgiveness, we will be in the kingdom of God. If we didn't have the strength within us to do that, God would not have called us today. But He has. So we have that strength through His Spirit to continue steadfast. And when we slip up, and when we sin, or when we get discouraged, or if we momentarily lose the vision of the kingdom of God and we wander here, or we are depressed in this way, if we turn to God, He is faithful to forgive us our sins. What we have to fear is coming to the point where we we do not seek forgiveness. Repentance is key. Another time maybe to discuss 
what things can lead us to the mindset of the sin that is not forgiven? Or what is the formula for not committing the sin that is not forgiven? But to close, 1 John chapter 1. 1 John chapter 1 and then verse 8. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. Verse 9, and please be sure that this is foremost in your mind and in your spiritual being, that you have this knowledge. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Brethren, repentance has always been offered to us. Repentance is key. What a blessing it is to know that. What a blessing to know what God will do with us and for us. The reward is great. Internalize that, have that be the way that you are. But do not discount the role of the fear of punishment because that is biblical, that is scriptural but we don't have to have that ultimate punishment. It is God who forgives. He looks to us to seek His forgiveness through our repentance.